Pakistan very much is unstable. This has come after two years of turmoil. People were hoping that the election might draw a line under this and they might decide who really deserved to run the country. But after what happened on Thursday and the shenanigans and the result, it appears that that turmoil will now continue. I'm David Knowles and this is Battlelines. Regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. I just find bombs and I find dead people, but it's a really scary thing for me. In this episode of Battle Lines, we speak to The Telegraph's foreign correspondent, Ben Farmer, reporting on Pakistan's turbulent elections and what they mean for the country's stability in the future. I also speak to The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, about talks of a US peace plan involving recognition of a Palestinian state, all while Israel plans an imminent invasion of Rafah in the south. It's Friday, the 16th of February, 2024. After weeks of political turmoil, it was announced that two rival political parties in Pakistan will form a coalition government and elect a new leader. This is complicated by the fact that the former Prime Minister Imran Khan and his party, the PTI, received a surprising swell of support and gained the most votes in Pakistan's elections. I speak to Ben Farmer about what this means for Pakistan's political and economic future. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Pakistan has had an election this past week. Could you give our listeners some context Who are the leading parties? What were the main electoral issues? Yeah, so um, Pakistan has had an election last week, and a fascinating election it was. So Pakistan is nominally a democracy, but what makes its elections always fascinating is behind those political parties, there's the military, which for much of the country's history has either ruled directly or indirectly. So as well as the political parties, you have this other big beast in the room. So Pakistan is, I think, the fifth or the sixth most populous country in the world, about 240 million people. The big political players are Imran Khan, the former uh, cricketer, and his party, which is called the PTI. Also, you have a man called Nawaz Sharif, who has been prime minister three times and his party, which is called the Pakistan Muslim League. So the election really followed two years of intense political turmoil in Pakistan. And if we go back to the beginning of that two years ago, Imran Khan, the former cricketer, was the prime minister. But he fell out with the army, who have this huge effect on politics. Within months of falling out, he was removed from the premiership. And he spent the last two years trying to get back into power and complaining that he was unfairly removed by a parliamentary vote of no confidence. So that's been the build-up to this election, where he has been hoping to get back into power. But the PMLN is now backed by the military, where they once backed Mr Khan, they now back the PMLN. And so in the last year or so, Really, it looks like all the weight of the state has been thrown against Mr Khan. He's been put in prison. 
His uh, party has been almost banned from campaigning and his workers say they've been harried. So that was really the build-up to this election, which took place last week. Well, can you tell us what happened on the day itself? That's a brilliant explanation, I think, of how we got here. So what happened on election day? What were the results? Well, with the build-up to the election, everyone expected that the PMLN would win very easily. Nawaz Sharif is a political titan in Pakistan, and he had the military behind him. But all through the, the campaign, Despite the difficulties that have been put against him, Imran Khan said, my people will come out, I'm the most popular. What happened then on election day, which was last Thursday, was that it did look like a huge number of voters did come out for Imran Khan. And at the end of the day, when the doors closed and they started to tot up the votes, it looked like there had been a big surprise. And many more voters had come out for Mr. Khan, despite all those difficulties, than anyone had expected. And then when they started to tot the votes up, that is seems to be what happened. Mr. Khan's party came back with the highest number of seats, about 93 out of 265, and quite a lot more than the PMLN. And what happens now? What's What are the latest developments? How are they going to form a government? Well, you have the situation where the most popular party is led by a man who's in prison. And in fact, it's not just Mr. Khan that's in prison. Most of the leadership are in prison. So how can they form a government? Very good question. Also, Mr. Khan said he he accuses the other parties of being corrupt and he refuses to form a coalition. So he, if you like, is standing in splendid isolation despite having the, the biggest number of votes. And he's left the other two parties to form a coalition. So the PMLN and another party called the Pakistan Muslim League last night got together. They will form a coalition. But after an election in which the electorate has really said in no uncertain terms that the most popular politician in Pakistan is Imran Khan. Could, could we speak a little bit more about Khan? Why is he in prison? Could you tell us more about the charges against him? Yes. Yeah, so after he uh, was removed from parliament in a no-confidence vote in, I think, April 2022, he was hit with a series of charges. In fact, dozens and dozens of them, ranging from everything from corruption to terrorism. And he's been handed at least three convictions. One of those convictions is corruption. One of them is for releasing state secrets. And one of them is weirdly that he didn't uh, follow the law when he married his most recent wife, his third wife, and therefore he married her illegally. So he's been handed three sentences. And I think the first of those was for three years. But then some of them, I think the state secret one was another seven or 10 years. And I think the illegal marriage one was a similar amount of time. So really, he's been buried under an avalanche of convictions. All of this sounds deeply destabilising to the Pakistani state and to society. Just how unstable is Pakistan right now then? What, what might happen yet? So are we seeing, could we see political disintegration in the future? What do you think? Pakistan very much is unstable. This has come after two years of turmoil. 
people were hoping that the election might draw a line under this and they might decide who really deserved to run the country. But after what happened on Thursday and the shenanigans and the result, it appears that that turmoil will now continue. Now, the biggest problem is Pakistan's finances. It's in a terrible state financially. It's got 28% inflation at the moment. It came very close to defaulting last year. It relies on bailouts from the IMF and, and from friends. Now, if you have a very you know, turbulent, um, weak government, which it looks like they do after the election, it's going to be very difficult to make tough choices about how they fix the economy and how they reform the economy. Is it going to be worse than that? Is there going to be, as you put it, disintegration or political violence? I don't think at the moment there is going to be political violence. Mr Khan has been very clear that he doesn't want to call his people out. He thinks that that would lead to a very strong crackdown and much worse legal trouble for him and his party. So I think the big problem is the economic trouble. And really, the country is in all sorts of difficulty at this stage. Could we zoom out a little bit and put Pakistan in in a bit more of a regional context then? Who are its friends, um, allies, and how are they reacting to this this turmoil inside the country? Well, Pakistan is in a very difficult neighbourhood. On one side, it has Afghanistan. On another side, it has Iran. It has difficult relations with each. It almost uh, came to conflict with Iran last month when they launched air raids at each other. Then its biggest neighbour is, of course, India. It's got decades of bad blood, really, with India and difficult relations. They are not in a frozen conflict, but they have difficult relations. They're almost at a state of alert as regarding each other, and they've had three wars with each other. So it is a difficult neighbourhood. Pakistan's friends are not necessarily in the neighbourhood. They will be looking for support, I think, from the IMF and from the Gulf. Gulf nations like the UAE and Saudi Arabia have in the past helped them when they have run into economic difficulties. What happens now then? What should our listeners be paying attention to as um, this deadlock continues? Well, I think we have to see whether the government, the new government, can try and balance the books and also what they do with Mr Khan, because Mr Khan really is the great unresolved political issue. He is in prison, but this election has shown that he is by far the most popular political figure and the most popular party leader. So how the rest of the political landscape deals with that fact is going to be the story of the coming years. Ben Palmer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ceasefire talks in Israel stalled this week again, after Benjamin Netanyahu's supposed refusal to send a delegation to Cairo. With the US reportedly set to lay out a deal that includes a Palestinian state, we speak to The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, who gives us an update from Jerusalem. Well, let's start with some diplomatic news and updates then, Natalia. Can you take us to the US and these interesting plans for a Palestinian state? Hi, David, and hi, everyone. We heard some really interesting reports on Wednesday night about the United States and several Arab countries aiming to present a long-term plan for peace between Israel and Palestinians and a time frame for the establishment of the Palestinian state. Now, it wouldn't seem outrageous to everyone who's been following the history of the Middle East in the past 30 years, including the Oslo Accords, 
which made a mention of the eventual establishment of the Palestinian state. But in the state that Israel is now, after the October 7th attack, and in the middle of the Gaza war, those reports create a terrible storm in, in the Israeli political scene, especially from the right wing. We heard from several prominent right wing figures threatening to walk out of the government coalition and essentially destroying the, the government coalition and triggering a new election if that plan was to be announced and if Israel, if Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, in some form would sound like he is on board with that plan. We heard from Bezalel Smotrich, the finance minister, asking Thursday morning um, for a special meeting of the government and he was seeking some concrete promises from Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies that this state will not be established and that whatever the U.S. suggests, Israel would be very much against it. And we've heard from other politicians, including the Israeli minister for diaspora, who even called for, as he described it, unilateral steps against the United States, including walking out of the Oslo Accords, should this plan be introduced in some shape or form. And it was interesting to look at the Israeli press this morning. There was an opinion piece in one of the biggest daily newspapers here, which made it clear that this proposal is not about Benjamin Netanyahu and, and his government. It's something, it's, it's a larger question. And the premise of that piece was that there's a consensus in Israeli society that Benjamin Netanyahu has to go when the war is over. He's deeply unpopular. But whatever happens with the establishment of Palestinian state, the Israeli public is very much against it, especially in the aftermath of October the 7th. That is definitely a big trauma. And if I, if I may say, the Israeli right wing has uh, politicized on that trauma, basically saying that if you, if we agree to a Palestinian state, we will end up with massacres like that on our border. And, you know, sev several politicians on the right wing spectrum this morning said that an establishment of the Palestinian state would essentially be a prize for Hamas and others for the um, deadly attack on October the 7th. Does the reaction here tell us about US and Israeli political relations at the moment? It doesn't sound, I mean, we heard some news from Joe Biden this week about his own dislike, personal dislike of Benjamin Netanyahu. What, what's the state of those of the relationship between the US and Israel? Well, the relationship is very fraught. And I just mentioned the finance minister. He's someone who actually admitted yesterday that he personally blocked the shipment of uh, flour, which was paid for by the United States and destined for Gaza. He literally issued an order for the Israeli seaport of Ashdod to not to clear the customs for that flour. And imagine that this is something that the United States has paid for. American officials, including U.S. Um, Secretary of State, has publicly thanked Israel for al allowing this major supply of humanitarian aid. And as you see, this is just one of the recent snubs from the Israeli government against its major ally what that we have seen in the past. And as you've just mentioned, it's quite clear that Joe Biden is losing patience with Benjamin Netanyahu. There have been reports of some strong language that he used against the Israeli prime minister, mostly berating him for his intransigence, for his lack of flexibility. But again, if we go back to the Palestinian state, this might prove something that transcends the political line, the party divisions in, the, in this country. And it totally makes sense for Joe Biden to talk about the establishment of the Palestinian state when he's facing an election, when Muslim American voters are disillusioned. And it would sound like 
some sort of consolation prize, if I may say, for Palestinians uh, around the time when there's a horrifying war in Gaza going on and there's no end in sight to that. So that would offer some sort of a prospect for those hoping for a Palestinian state. The idea is that the United States, together with several Arab nations, would announce that the United States will recognize the Palestinian state. It doesn't sound like it will be something happening tomorrow. They may make this statement in a couple of weeks, but they may offer a timeline which will stretch years or maybe decades. So it's definitely not something that's going to happen right now and will have a uh, an actual impact on the battlefield, for example. But it would be a very strong signal to Israel, but it remains to be seen how, how the Israeli public will react, how the current Israeli government will react. Well, you spoke there about the, the battlefield. Let's go there now. What's the latest from the war in Gaza and, and across Israel? I know you've been looking at numerous sort of different strikes and things. Yeah, just on Thursday morning, we heard some surprising reports that apparently there are still operations in the north of Gaza, which we thought and heard from the IDF was under Israeli con- control. Apparently, there were several Hamas co- commanders and um, operatives that were killed by Israel in the north of Gaza. So it looks like the, the operations there are, are not uh, coming to an end. There is still heavy fighting in Han Yunus in the south, and there is an imminent invasion of Rafah that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has spoken about, and he made it clear that it's going to happen, even though he promised to, to the Americans that he will not go ahead with those plans unless there is a viable evacuation plan, whereas it remains to be seen what he can possibly offer in terms of an evacuation of over 1.4 million of Palestinians in Gaza, because there's literally no place for them to go. One might suggest that Israel might want to encourage people to move north, to move back from where they were evacuated initially. But as I mentioned, it looks like there is still some fighting going on in the north. So there doesn't seem to be any immediate solution on the horizon. Something else I wanted to mention this morning is there was a major operation to rescue Israeli hostages on Monday, I believe, when the IDF managed to locate and save two Israeli hostages deep in Gaza in Rafah. We also heard about airstrikes that accompanied that operation. And the way the IDF put it, it had to use airstrike to distract Hamas fighters in the area and provide cover for Israeli forces rescuing the Israeli hostages. And it, it recently emerged that among victims in one of those airstrikes. There was an extended family of Palestine's ambassador to to the UK. He recently spoke about it, and he mentioned everyone who's, who's been killed there. And it's something like a dozen family members of his wife, his wife's uh, cousin, uncle and aunts, and ne- nephews. And separately, I, I looked up, there was a report on a shortly after the attack describing the impact on the ground from those airstrikes. And yeah, it's just, I think it's really important to to tell both sides of the story here. Obviously, extraordinary operation to to rescue the Israeli hostages that brought a much needed relief for the families, but again, more destruction and devastating for Palestinians in Gaza. What was the reaction in Israel to this operation? It, it feels, as the way you're describing it, like a rare piece of, of good news. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a rare thing, and I think it was one of the very rare occasions here in in the past four months that there was genuine. Jubilation. I would say something that you can compare to the hostage deal in November, although the mood was slightly different because it was a deal 
and Israel was having to stop the war and releasing Palestinian prisoners. So this one was really celebrated. It was a uh, front page story for two days straight and television stations ran stories about the troops who conducted the operation and describing it in minute details about how complex and challenging it was. And uh, for many Israelis, it was a rare, it was a rare success. It was something to celebrate themselves on because at the end of the day, one of the purposes of that war was to save the hostages. And at least two people have been safely extracted from Gaza. And I recently heard that they are supposed to be in a good condition and they've even been discharged from hospital already. And Natalia, just finally, can I ask, since since you arrived in Israel in October and then almost immediately began covering this awful war, what, what would you say you've learned about Israeli society? How do you see that it's changed in, in the time that, that you've been there? That's a very good question. I would say what I've come across and heard in the recent months is that a lot of Israel's left wing, which would previously be, if not supportive of the Palestinian cause, but understanding and definitely not supporting the most radical solutions, they have tilted heavily to the right. There's definitely more pressure from hostages' families to do something to stop it to bring about any deal that would help to bring back their relatives. But yeah, I would say, I I just, I found it really surprising how quickly this country switched onto a war mode. To be honest, I would expect that after two months of this war, I mean, the economy wouldn't collapse, but like the economic effect would be so clear that there would be a push, not necessarily a political push, but like economic push to wrap it up because it's taking such a big toll on society and economy. But there hasn't been. And just on just on Friday, the international ratings agency Moody's has downgraded Israel's credit rating to negative for the first time in in Israel's history, for the first time, Israel's sovereign debt has been rated by international agencies in something like 30 or 40 years. So, you know, we, we live in this historic time like that. But again, it didn't provoke any calls to stop the war or even give any timeline for stopping it. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's quite extraordinary, I would say. Natalia, is there anything else we haven't spoken about this week that you think is important to say for our listeners? Yeah, I would say I think it's really important to keep an eye on the north of Israel. Just uh, last week I was doing a dispatch there and things were tense as it is. And then they uh, completely exploded on Wednesday when we saw a, a flurry of attack from Hezbollah in deeper into northern Israel than before. And Israel also responded with airstrikes going as, as far further than they um, have in the past, uh, sort of, it's still within the red lines of those sporadic, uh, daily clashes. But, um, I think both sides are walking a very tight rope here. And this is something that definitely requires attention. Natalia Vasilieva, thank you so much. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. 
battle lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dargahi, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. <laughs>